Hello and welcome to the Velocity Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Ventura, and we're going to talk about bonking today. Yep, that's the word, bonking. If you're an endurance athlete uh, and you've run or ridden your bike and for long distances, you may have felt a bonk. You may have absolutely known you've bonked. Um, but today we're going to kind of define what actually bonking is. We're going to talk about some of the short and long-term effects, and we're going to talk about the potential benefits you may see to bonking, if there are any. I'm not going to do this alone. I'm bringing in a good friend of mine, um, Dr. Kevin Sprouse, who has been a doctor on the pro tour, the world tour, for the last 11 years. He's got his degree in exercise science, and he's certified in sports medicine as well as emergency medicine. Uh, but more importantly, Dr. Sprouse is someone that I continue to learn from on a regular basis, and I am excited to bring him into the show to talk about bonking, because I am sure in his experience on the Pro Tour, as well as his own personal experience, he's a great biker himself, has experienced bonking and some of the nasty effects of bonking. So Dr. Sprouse, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you. How you doing? Robbie, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Um, I think we need to clarify too that bonking, if you're in the UK, is something totally different. And that's not what we're digging into today, right? <laughs> they, they call it a hunger knock, right? In the UK, right. don't they have different terms? They do. They do. Okay. Yeah, we'll perfect. have a translation going, maybe some subtitles. Are we going to get some flack here talking about the word bonking? I mean, it is kind of a U.S. term, I guess, when you think about it, but you can, there are some other things that come to mind when you hear the word bonking. I totally get that. So we're going to talk about um, the one that happens to us and makes us feel really crappy um, after many hours in the saddle and uh, obviously not enough fuel, but well, let's get into that in a second. It kind of brings me to this fueling. Let's, let's start with some fueling doc. What do we, what do we do? How does the fueling work when we do exercise? Well, I think one of the things that athletes tend to tend to compartmentalize is they think of fueling as, as what they eat on the bike or when they're exercising. And they, they really limit their view to the time that they kind of cross the start line and the finish line. And they forget about the other 20, 22 hours of the day, which are just as important. So fueling is basically setting up yourself physiologically, nutritionally, from a glycogen standpoint, which we'll talk about, so that you have enough fuel on board to, to kind of attack the task at hand. Perfect. And let's talk about the fuels that, that athletes use when they exercise. Yeah. So it's primarily two fuels, um, carbohydrates and fats. And there, there's an argument that maybe ketones and, and some other thing, you know, a little bit of protein contribution, but you're really getting in the weeds when you talk about anything other than carbohydrates and fat. Those are what we want to look at. Um, and those two uh, fuels are basically macronutrients. Um, we, we get them from what we eat, what we store, and then we burn them in different ways. Now, I we'll I get mean, into that in a little more detailed, but that's the, the high level view. For sure. And I, and I think what, what I think is important um, is to define, you know, how much of that fuel we have on board. And I think what's really important, I think about I mean, obviously fat and just from a fueling perspective, you know, we have a DEXA scanner here. We do a lot of body composition analysis and we have never seen anybody with um, a small amount of fat where they couldn't get through any sort of endurance race, right? I mean, we have enough fat on board to last us any amount of time that we would experience in one endurance workout. I mean, 3,500 calories to a pound. I think one of the, 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 
the least amount of fat that we've seen on an athlete is like 15 pounds. And that's 15 times 3,500. That's plenty of fuel as it relates to the fat. But the problem is not fat, it's carbohydrates. Talk about how many carbohydrates most people have on board and what a good reference point for people to think about when they're fully loaded, how much they have. Yeah. So it's a great point. When, when we think about fat for a thin athlete, it's somewhere between 100,000 and 150,000 calories that are stored as fat. For carbohydrate, it's between 1,500 and 2,000 calories. So it's you know 150th or less uh, what you have of fat. So it's a very limited resource and it's a resource you can burn through pretty quickly if you've got any kind of intensity. So it it often becomes the, the nutritional rate limiting step for performance. And that's why there's such a focus on, um, from, from a sports nutrition marketing standpoint on how to get carbohydrates in, uh, because it's, it's basically, eventually you're going to run out and we'll talk about how you, the replenishment rate and all those things, the burn rate versus replenishment, you're going to run out. Um, the further you can push that off in an endurance activity, the, the better you're likely to perform. Absolutely. And I think if you're thinking at home, you know, how many do I store 1500 to 2000? That's a pretty big gap. Um, I think if, if you're kind of new to the sport and, you know, you haven't had a lot of experience or you haven't done any personal testing or you haven't done any of these metabolic tests that people can do, I would err on the side of less, right? 1500 is kind of a good number. It's kind of like when you're going diving, right? And you have that oxygen on your wrist. You always want to make sure that you're erring on the side of, you know, the least number possible, because if you run out, it could be disastrous. So if you're thinking about it, I always like to tell people, think about 1500. And if you have 2000, think about it as a bonus but really kind of use that 1500 to 1800 number as the number that you're starting with. And that is fully loaded, right? I mean, most people don't even start with that because, you know, they've slept, they burn some calories at nighttime, they wake up, they get on their bicycle without breakfast. They could be as low as what doc? Well, so it, it kind of depends. Um, if, if the day before was a, uh, kind of a, a reasonable day, let's say not super high intensity and you refueled at dinner so that you've, you've kind of refueled the tank completely and you go to bed, your muscles are going to remain fairly full. I mean, you're not using them at night while you're asleep. So if you went to bed with say 1500 uh, calories worth of glycogen stored, glycogen is the storage form of carbohydrate. Um, what you will burn through at night is liver glycogen. So you may deplete that by, you know, 50, 60, 70%, depending on kind of metabolic rate, how long you were asleep, things like that. Um, but muscle glycogen will stay fairly full. Um, so in a scenario like that, you know, maybe you go to sleep with 1500, uh, on board and you wake up with, I don't know, 1200, you know, it's not a huge deficit. Um, and that's something to talk about too, because a lot of people will do fasted workouts thinking, well, if they have dinner, go to bed, wake up and do a workout, it's fasted. It is, but you can see, you don't really dig into those stores too much with that type of scenario. Gotcha. But I think, you know, whenever I've done a big event or a big ride, I mean, racing is a little bit different. There's some nerves in the morning, you know, you're walking around, you're warming up, you're doing some different things. So I just want people, the, the goal of that little talk right there was always err on the side that you have less, right? Don't assume that when you start that ride, you have 2000 stored calories of carbohydrate and you don't have to worry about anything until you get down to 1800. I mean, that's just like, I just want people to always think that keep, keep, 
you know, your reference point should be closer to 15 and not 2000. Now people that can train themselves and they've done the test and they know they have 2000 for whatever reason, it's a little bit different, but I just want to make sure when people think about starting their long rides that they're airing closer to 15 and not 2000, just to be a little bit more safe. Oh, for sure. Because that is under ideal conditions that you only drop slightly, right? And it's rarely ideal conditions. So it's, it's always best to err on the side of, uh, of, of being conservative with that estimate. And let, let's not get into this right now, but eventually, just so you guys know, we're going to talk about how many calories of carbohydrate you're roughly burning through at different intensities and then roughly how much you can put back in the engine. But before we even get to that, let's talk about what actually is happening when you're bonking. Like what, what happens? Because I think what people tend to believe, they throw that word around a lot, Doc, and I hear it a lot because I coach a lot of athletes. I was, you know, 45 minutes into this ride and I was following this really strong guy and we got to a hill and I couldn't stay on his wheel and I totally bonked and I got dropped. Or, you know what, I'm, I was riding with my buddies and it was really hot outside and after like 90 minutes, I just totally bonked and had to go home. And I just want to make sure that people understand that bonking is not running out of necessarily horsepower for a given duration. It's not necessarily just feeling bad on your bike. It's not just general fatigue. I did a really four hour ride one day. The next day I came back and I started the ride. And after 50 minutes, I was bonked out. It's like, no, you're not bonking. You know, I want to make sure that they understand bonking is um, a fueling issue. Um, It really comes down to a fueling issue and you really can't get to a bonk until you've been out for, I would say at least two hours. It'd be really hard to bonk in two hours. Oh, for sure. Assuming you start in any reasonable place uh, in terms of fueling. I, I think a lot of athletes, even on a professional level, tend to go to this idea of bonking when they perform poorly because it's something that is uh, a little bit, not an excuse, but it's easily fixed. It's like, oh, I just didn't eat well enough, right? Because it's not blaming your fitness. It's not blaming something that's going to take time to address. It's just like, oh, well, I'll do it better next time. Um, so bonking can be kind of a convenient excuse, I think, at times, uh, without even meaning to be making excuses necessarily. But it's often misused, like you said. Like those, those scenarios are not truly where glycogen stores are limiting your performance. Yeah, and, and that's funny that you took it to another level of like making it an excuse, even though they know what bonking is, they're using that as their excuse because it can't be I don't have enough horsepower. That's never the the, the excuse right. at the highest level. But even I'm talking about weekend warriors, they just throw that term around as like failure, right? Engine failure, and it's really not. It's, I mean, it's this form of engine failure, but at the end of the day, it's a very specific problem, and that specific problem is muscle glycogen. So talk about when bonking truly starts to happen, what's happening with our muscle glycogen? Well, so the glycogen in the muscle is the fuel for, for efforts um, and, and it contributes at different percentages. But regardless, when you are exercising, performing, training, you're burning glycogen. And like we talked about, it's a, it's a limited fuel. So that fuel level starts to drop slowly, sometimes quickly, depending on how, how intense you're going, but it's dropping consistently. If, if you don't replace it, as you approach zero, your body will actually start to kind of turn on a governor and shut things down. Um, There's some interesting research uh, into this phenomenon and how this happens. Um, But the the short version is your body recognizes that you're kind of getting toward empty, that the gas light comes on, right? And and the body just kind of, uh, you know, 
without knowing, without it being conscious, you just start to shut things down in terms of, of in terms of performance. And it's a protective mechanism, or it's thought to be. Um, you know, evolutionarily, you wouldn't want to be uh, running from a, a predator or chasing a lion or something like that, and and just suddenly go from you know enough fuel to zero. You'd want some warning and and some idea that you're coming up on this, and that's what we experience on the bike when we're not properly fueled. So it's it's a bit of an insidious process, um, but you reach a point where it's just like all systems are just turned off if you don't fix it. And, and I think what's important about that are two things. One is as you start to just from our listeners, I know many of you already know this, but as you start to increase intensity, you require more fuel. Um, you require more more combustible material to to generate that 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 energy. And oftentimes, the harder you go, that fuel comes from carbohydrate. At these lower intensities, your body's burning a larger percentage of fat. And as the intensity starts to go up, you burn more carbohydrate, but you also burn more fuel in general. What we're really concerned about is that carbohydrate. And that's what Doc was talking about. So once you get to the point where you're, like Doc said, you start to get low, it's kind of like a, a light, a Garmin light or a flashlight. It doesn't go off. It starts to blink. It starts to do things because it doesn't want to leave you stranded in the woods, right? It, it, it goes into this whatever safety mode where it starts to like flick down some of the some of the switches down to kind of like bring down your ability to do work because it doesn't want you to die, right? It wants to keep us alive. Our body is uh, inherently governed by this central nervous system that says, I'm going to do everything. I don't care if he loses this bike race. I don't care if he loses this wheel. This guy's not dying on me. And I'm going to do a bunch of stuff here to his body. I'm going to weaken him. I'm going to bring him down. I'm even going to slow down his brain and his balance and all these perceptions just so I can keep him alive till he gets food in his system. Because there's plenty of food on board when you start bonking. Our brain just yeah. doesn't let us access it, correct? Yeah. Oh, it's totally true. There was an Italian researcher, a guy named Samuele Marcora, who did this. That's a name right there. Say it again. Oh, I you can probably it. say it better than me, right? <laughs> Samuele Marcora. Nice. Um, and so he was part of this research team that looked at what happens from a glycogen standpoint, when, when we bonk. Um, and they did it in an interesting way. They did it during VO2 max tests. So, um, you know, in a VO2 max test, you basically ramp up the effort and go harder and harder and harder until you fail. Like you just cannot, you can't take another pedal stroke. You can't take another step on the treadmill. You're, you are done. Um, and at that point, and these were more extended VO2 max. It wasn't like a 20 minute VO2 max, uh, with, with, like with pro cyclists, I don't remember what they used in the study, but with pro cyclists, we'll often do um, like 10 or 12 minute steps and the test will take an hour and a half, closer to two hours. Uh, same with runners. And so it's an extended test. They get to the end totally empty. And what they did at that point was they looked at muscle biopsies. So they actually pulled muscle out and they looked to see how much glycogen is left there. Presumably there would be none because they have totally reached their limit, failed, like the, the, all systems have shut down, but there was actually enough glycogen left over on average to maintain that VO2 max pace. So that top end for another seven minutes. Wow. So, I mean, that's, that's a significant amount of, of fuel left over. And practically, I think any of us who have done a race have probably experienced this where you just feel totally crashed and you're coming toward the end and you turn a corner and you see the finish line. And all of a sudden you start sprinting 
right? And you know, you, you could have told yourself 30 seconds sooner that, that the fuel was done. You, you were totally bonked. You had nothing left in the tank. And then you see the finish line and fuel is no longer an issue. Um, and it's, it's that kind of practicality that brings home what's happening with the mind-body uh, glycogen interface there, I think. Yep, for sure. I mean, I, I think you've bought, have you bonked before, Doc? You have, right? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. At, so, at some of our events that we've been at together. For yeah. Sure. <laughs> okay. I love it. Um, I've definitely bonked before and I, and I think um, I'm a little bit more susceptible to it because I am um, such a glycolytic athlete. You know, I feel like I, 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 I require so much sugar. I'm riding with guys that maybe don't require as much sugar, even though we have a similar, we'll just call it threshold or ability. Um, I just need to eat significantly more. And if I don't have that available to me, um, I, I become, um, I start to have that feeling of, of my body starting to flick down some of the, the levers there. And you're 100% right that at any one given time, even if I'm bonking and I'm like, I, I have, don't have any food. Usually I just start asking everybody around me for food. That's generally what, what the MO is. And, and my friends kind of know it already. So as soon as they saw me start asking for food, they, I mean, like, and it's not just, I just, the one little like chew's not going to do it. I'm ravenous when I start getting there. Talk about some other stories in a bit. But um, if I don't get that sugar, if I don't get that food, um, and I start flipping down the switches, even if there's a really hard effort that I need to make to stay with the group I'm with, I can generally do it. Like I can override my brain to some degree if I really want to. And I think I've practiced, I think I've gotten better at doing that. Like, you know, overriding that, that, that trigger that's in my brain you know, that's telling I, me to go slower. I think that idea of practice, I mean, you just said practice, that, that's a real thing. You train your body that you're, you're not actually going to die in that situation, right? Like your body's seen it over and over and you're able to consciously subvert that and say, no, no, it's going to be okay. I can push through. Yep. And, and, and I think that that's, that's an important component because when you, if you are in a race or you are at a bike ride and you are bonking, trust me, we want to get you away from that. And Doc's going to talk about how to do that, but you still got a little in there. So if you're pretty close to the finish line or close to that next aid station, um, understand that you'll get there. Um, it, it's, it's, you're in, you're in kind of a, you're having a brownout. You're not completely out, right? It's, you're just, you're just starting to dim it out. Um, bad things are happening, mind you, when this is happening, um, to your body and, and, and stuff that you may not recover from in any short period of time, but you will make it to the next feed zone, most likely depending on when you realize it. Um, cause I think that's one of the issues doc is, is people don't realize this is happening when you're, when you've bonked as many times as we have. We realize it right away, right? Yeah. But when you haven't, you don't. You you might assume like you might assume it's just fatigue, right? How do you kind of know when it's actually glycogen based? Usually, it it is that more insidious drop off um, that then culminates in kind of a a cliff at the end, right? Where you fatigue kind of sets in similarly, but it tends to be, in my experience, a little bit more abrupt. Um, like you're going, 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 and then just all of a sudden, you know, within a, a matter of minutes, you don't feel, you go from feeling good to not good and you can kind of back it down and then come back with, with fatigue with, with a bonk. Um, typically it's a slower decline and you feel it coming. Like you said, like it's, Oh, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. And then all of a sudden it's bad and you can't just back off for a minute and hit it again where you where with fatigue, you get kind of a muscular recovery, a physiological recovery. 
Um, but just slowing down doesn't refuel anything. So that's kind of a good, uh, I think, differentiator if you're just out on the road and kind of wondering what's going on. You know, back it off for a minute and then see if you can go again. Yep. And and if not, I mean, I would say hunger, but hunger oftentimes doesn't it, really manifest. That's, that's a tricky one. You know, I was yeah. just about to talk about that. It's not like you get you get hungry. Okay, let's go back. So I, I love the idea of if you rest, you don't get better. That's, 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 we'll just call that number one, but number two to me, and, and this, I don't know if this is based in science and you can, you can bring some science into this. If you think there needs to be, it happens here for me. My brain starts to lose its ability to, to really think I get agitated and ornery. It's like when you get too hungry at work and you come back home and your fuse is like this, that's when I know that I'm starting to go there because I'm cranky. I start getting cranky. I start like my patience goes down. A guy takes the wheel in front of me and I want to rip his head off. You know, like yeah. that to me lets me know that bonking is happening or it's coming. Yeah. No, I think there's probably a lot to that. Um, and, and kind of that hangry idea you talk about that we experience at work and through, through daily life that, that plays out a little differently on the bike, but it still, it, it plays out. And you still, when you're bonking, you still got kind of this, that, that competitive drive, like you talked about this, this idea that you really want to perform. Um, when it's a fitness thing, a lot of times the, it's almost like you lose the will to go forward. It's kind of like, you know, you can't, right. Whereas with, with the bonk, it's like, I know I can do this. Why is it not happening? Um, and it's, it's two different mentalities. I don't know that there's anything scientific to that. I'm sure there is, but I would totally agree from, from just an anecdotal standpoint. And even what I see uh, on the world tour, I mean, you, like you described asking people for food, we'll get these frantic calls on the radio that are just like, why, why is he so upset? Like, why, do, why does he need food so much right now? And then you kind of realize it when they come back to the car or whatever's going on. Um, it, it, it tends to play out that way pretty frequently. Yeah. If I'm on a long ride and we're three or four hours in, it's clockwork. Someone's going to start getting cranky. And the first thing I'm telling them is eat, right? Yeah. Just eat yeah. some food. Let's see if that kind of brings your, your, your attitude back around. Because I think what's, I mean, when you're on long rides and you're, you're deep and you're going hard, you're burning through lots of carbohydrate. And there's a good chance if your power is well within your range and you're not able to do the power and you have the fitness, it's food. It's bonking. Yeah. It's oh, like, sure. you know how good you are. You know how far you're into the ride. You should be able to do this power really easy. And all of a sudden you can't do it at all. And the temperature's okay. It's probably food, maybe dehydration. But I think food presents itself just a little bit differently to me. Um, and that's this brain part of it than dehydration. But sometimes when I get dehydrated, the same, I have very similar uh, feelings in my body and in my brain when that happens as well. Yeah, um, I would think some of the same neurologic governors play out in both scenarios, quite honestly. And really, when usually when someone is underfueled in the heat, they're also dehydrated and vice versa. So it's not like one happens in isolation. Yep, for sure. Um, let's talk about, you know, when, when, when I think in a bicycle race, let's just call, I think it was Amstel or, or, a, or one of the classics last year or the year before. Maybe, no, it was the world championships two years ago. I think when Mads Pedersen won, um, uh, Vanderpool was in that breakaway. Yeah, and he yeah. was strong. I mean, he was 
I mean, by all odds makers, when you're looking at that three with, you know, whatever, 40K to go, 30K to go, you're saying my money is on Vanderpool, right? He's had an incredible year. He's former world champion. And it was pretty obvious what happened to him. He bonked, right? And, oh, yeah. and what was interesting is you knew it was a bonk because if he got tired or something happened, well, it probably wouldn't get tired ultimately at that, for that, at that duration of the race. But the amount of energy he lost and how quickly he lost it was pretty remarkable. And when that happens to a rider like that, talk about some of the short-term and some of the long-term effects that he was experiencing or that people experience when they bonk. Well, short-term is kind of what we were able to see if you were watching that race. It's just a lack of ability to perform. Um, it is, like you talked about, um, the, the mental component and kind of the, the lack of clarity and just kind of this fogginess. Uh, sometimes you'll even see them weaving a bit on the road, like yep. just not holding a line, not, not dangerously. So, you know, not riding off mountains or anything, but just not looking good on the bike. You know, we'll talk about, and you've probably heard this in watching the tour de France when guys start to rock or their body just on the bike doesn't look as smooth anymore. Yep. It's things like that. And, and that goes back to that neurologic component. Um, I don't want to paint it as a dangerous picture. You know, you certainly see some of these things when an athletes concussed or something that is, that is dangerous. This is more just like a loss of the top, you know, three to 5% of, of what makes them an elite athlete, right? It just, they just kind of come down a level. Long-term though, th there are some real consequences that are uh, both performance and health-based. Performance-based, there, there's kind of a big inflammatory load from uh, an episode that drives you that deep into your stores. Uh, it's hard to recover from. It's, it's hard if not impossible to perform at a really high level the next day or in subsequent days, like it, it takes the body some time to rebuild from that. Uh, you depress your immune system. So it's not uncommon, especially in a grand tour. If somebody gets that far, uh, that far kind of down the glycogen burn uh, lane that you see them get sick. Um, you know, it, it'll impact sleep in kind of the same way that, fasting does, you know, if somebody, a lot of people talk about how hard it is to sleep if they're fasting. It's, it's the same idea, even though you refill the, after a bonk, everything just feels kind of empty um, and athletes toss and turn. And so it's kind of this multifactorial thing where ultimately it all comes back to the idea that recovery from that is significant and it's usually not going to happen in 12 to 24 hours. And what's amazing is all those things you just talked about, are reflected. I bonked when I've had my aura ring on and my readiness score the next morning was a mess. I mean, it was below 50. My resting heart rate was up. My HRV was down. My body temperature was up. Like bonking to me really, really messes me up for a few days. It just, it just takes, it takes, it has an enormous impact on my ability to, to come back and train or, or come back and race, um, uh, within even a couple of days, three days, even, um, at the outside. So I think it's from the long-term perspective, I, I really, really have a hard time coming back, obviously depending on how deep I bonked, but I'm going to go back to what you said before short term, but doc, I have had some situations where I felt like maybe I wasn't hallucinating. I've gotten so deep because I think 
the depth of the bonk does play a role. If you start to, ca- if you catch it quickly, you eat your food, you have a, like a pro cyclist, he starts the bonk, he calls the team car up, he gets his food right away. Maybe he's only experiencing it for 10 or 15 minutes. He gets some food back on board. Maybe he might not come up to his normal, but he's at least going to be able to get to the finish line and feel okay. Certain times I've been on training rides where I bonked and had to get home without any food. And it was a, I was a mess by the time I got home. I was literally, I mean, I could control my bicycle, but I had to really focus on it. So many of those, my brain had turned off so many of those switches that I was kind of, hang, I was winging a prayer and it getting home, barely making it. And I think, I think there is the potential if you don't have food to, to, to stop it, to do a little bit more damage short term. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's well put and very fair. Um, you know, I've seen guys get off a bike and just lay down on the side of the road. Like they just, they can't do anything else. Right. And you just took my story by the way, cause I, oh, did I? I was in Boulder and I bonked so bad. I literally had no energy. I just laid on the ground. I woke up two hours later. Oh, wow. It was bad. I mean, like I was just like, but I didn't really sleep. I was kind of in like this fake sleep cause I was bonking yeah. so bad. I couldn't even like sleep well. Um, and, and I didn't have a phone and it was just a mess. And then I ended up calling my buddy and coming to get me. That's how bad it was. But yeah, that's, it, I did fall. Like I just went on the ground right where I was, tried to go to bed. Still clipped in. This bike <laughs> I mean, it was a mess, but, but that was the extreme. So go on. Yeah. And that is extreme, but that does happen. Um, and I think I don't want to paint the picture that it can never be dangerous, but the typical, the typical bonk is more just, uh, really uncomfortable, but yeah. I mean, if, if you get your, your glycogen levels low enough that you start to see significant drops in blood sugar, then, I mean, you can, you, the brain's primary fuel is, is glucose. And so if glucose starts to drop below 55, 50, I mean, it's different for everybody. You know, if, if you know, diabetics don't do well dropping below 70, somebody else may be fine at 45. But the point is when, when, when the blood sugar starts to drop, certain organs that use that as fuel, like the brain, start to run uh, in, in kind of an imperfect manner. And so you can experience some of those things. Um, hopefully it doesn't get that far, but you're right. The scenario where you're on a long ride, maybe unsupported, and you're, you're out in the mountains, in the wilderness, and trying to get home, you run a higher risk of that being really problematic. And, and folks, just so you know, we're going to tell you how to make sure this doesn't happen to you in a little bit. So, so, so we're, we're, we're painting a tough picture here, but I, I mean, if you can avoid, if you can make good decisions and have a, a good plan every time you head out for a long ride, this isn't going to happen. I mean, this is, this is one of those things where you get ahead of yourself, but when it does happen, oftentimes you're riding with others and you're riding harder than you should. Um, you're burning more carbohydrate. I mean, when Vanderpool is riding at an average of 330 watts, guy's burning 900 calories of carbohydrate an hour. I mean, he is burning a lot of energy, a lot of carbohydrate or potentially more. So, or maybe a little bit less if he's super aerobic. But at the end of the day, when you're at high intensity, you're coursing through that carbohydrate at a very, very, very fast rate. And there's no way you can get it back in at that rate. And we're going to talk about those two things next here. So doc, how much can people expect to burn at given percentages of, of threshold? For example, I know I said 50% of uh, maybe at 70% of threshold, you're at a 50, 50 fat to carb ratio. Um, I mean, that's a very general term. I know there's testing and things that we have to do to figure that out exactly, but talk about how much we're burning and how much we can put back in. 
Yeah, so I think your your estimate's a good one. That you know, somewhere around sixty five percent of FTP, um, if you just take a wide swath of humanity yep. and and average it, you're you're going to be at about a fifty fifty burn, which means fifty percent of your calories are coming from fat oxidation, fifty percent from carbohydrates or glycogen. Um, as you go harder, then what happens is the contribution of carbohydrate goes up and the contribution of fat goes down. And again, carbohydrate is that limited resource that we want to spare. So you start to go, you, know, you start to empty the tank even quicker. It becomes very individual after that uh, because you know, I, I know you've done a, a talk uh, with Sebastian about uh, the, how to individualize testing and look at some of this stuff. And this is where it really comes into play is knowing that if you and I are riding together, and we happen to have the same FTP of say 300 watts, which is an insult to you and a and a and a great pat on the back to me. But um, if, if we're riding together and we actually have the same FTP, because as you said, you're a very glycolytic rider, I'm a very aerobic rider. We're going to be burning contributions from fat and carbohydrates that look very like wildly different. Um, and so when it hits me versus you is going to look very different. So I, I hesitate to get too much into estimates beyond that. But um, the, I think the idea is a good one just to know that, you know, people think of FTP uh, or that threshold power is kind of what you could hold for maybe an hour, right? Yep. So at 65% of that, which is a really easy pace, you're still 50-50. I mean, there's still a, a good contribution from carbohydrate and glycogen which is why on really long rides, even if they're easy, this becomes a problem also. Um, but as you ramp it up, when you get closer to, say, uh, riding at your FTP, so we're talking 65% below is 50-50, once you get FTP, your contribution is primarily carbohydrate from that point on. Um, and when you think about it, again, that's something you can hold for, call it an hour. Um, that's not so hard for, for some of these rides. You, you will accumulate, uh, you know, if your TSS is 100 for a given ride, then you accumulated an hour. And if it's a long ride, you may have a 250. So you've spent essentially two and a half hours at, at FTP. And then you're thousands of calories into the glycogen burn at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, to, just to use that, that, you know, the 300 watt threshold number that, that you and I are both at, I mean, my numbers are pretty straightforward. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm close to eight, 900 calories of carbohydrate at 300 watts. And if I do significant efforts on a hill, you know, or, or on a long ride, I'm, I'm just burning through tons and tons and tons of that carbohydrate when I'm, when I'm up at those high intensities. And I think um, people don't realize, hey, my average, you know, was right around 200 or 250 or whatever. I did all these spikes where I dumped all this glycogen. And what people don't realize, even after you finish those spikes, your body is takes a while to get down to fat again. I mean, it still rolls at that high carbohydrate burn as you're starting to come back down. So it's not like 200 watts equals exactly 50-50 carb to, to, to fat either. So I think, right. I know we're getting a little bit too technical here, but at the end of the day, you burn a lot more carbohydrate than you think and oftentimes more than you can replace. I'd say almost all the time, more than you can replace, um, more than you can replace on the bike. Now that may not get you to the point of a deficit large enough to create a bonk, but you're going to come out of every ride at a deficit. Um, if you did any kind of intensity, because if you think, uh, you know, at FTP, you're burning 900 calories of carbohydrate an hour. 
and we back that down and say, um, you know, say the average for the ride you're burning, uh, 600, five, 600, um, the, per hour, what's the amount that you can put back, uh, per hour with carbohydrate? What do you tolerate? I'm pretty good at, at 350. I mean, I think that's about, I, I take on 400 when I'm really going hard and I'm nervous. I just yeah. kind of overdo it a little bit because just maybe I'm, I'm going to be able to take in 400, but I would say for me, 350 is probably a good number that I can legit, legitimately say I can process each hour. Yeah. So 350 to 400 is still not five to 600. Yeah, right? exactly. So if you're burning five to 600 and you're doing really good to get in 350 to 400, it's still a losing equation. Yeah. Um, and that, that's what I'm getting at ultimately with this is no matter, no matter what your ride looks like, um, you are very likely to be putting in less carbohydrate than you're burning. Now, that's not, that's not catastrophic most of the time. But if you don't keep a close eye on it and kind of prepare for that, it can become catastrophic. Yeah, because you have this, you have this fifteen to two thousand calorie buffer, right? So if you're losing two hundred calories an hour, technically you can go seven hours without running out of fuel, or eight hours without running out of fuel. So mm -hmm. that's part of kind of the next thing I want to talk about, Doc. Is first I want to talk about what happens when you bonk. What are some solutions to, to getting out of it, and then we'll talk about how to prevent it. But let's talk about. You're riding, you're starting to feel like the switches are going down. You're starting to think about, uh-oh, I, I might have got caught behind. If I start to concentrate a little bit on what I've eaten and what I've done, I'm uh-oh, I, I know I'm going to bonk here sooner. I'm bonking. What do I do? Eat. And, I mean, okay. and, and I know that sounds really basic, but um, get some carbohydrate in. And you know, it doesn't mean you want to throw down like 200 grams because you're going to have a really hard time digesting it, but get a good load in. Get 30, 40, you know, you'll know what you can tolerate. Um, but, but get a good bolus in, and that may be, that may be in a drink, you know, maybe you've got scratch and you're going to be able to put down your know, 25 grams in a drink and then uh, have a few chews as well. And, and you can easily get up to like 40, 50 grams that you've put in pretty quickly. Um, but you need to get that in and get, get in something that is quick burning that's sugar because the, the higher glycemic, uh, options, you know, whether it's a cliff bar that's oats and some other stuff, and it's got some sugars in it, but you know, you don't want anything fibrous. You don't want protein. You don't want fat. You want sugar that's going to get in and get in quickly. The other thing that you can do, interestingly, is um, there, there's research to show that you can reverse the bonk a bit just by swishing uh, a very sugary solution in your mouth and not even swallowing it, which is not the fix when you're on the road. But if you can only tolerate 40 or 50 grams and you get that in, um, there may be some benefit to kind of swishing a sweet, sweet drink and spitting it out, knowing that you're not going to have to process those calories. But from a chemical standpoint and a mental like governor standpoint, you're able to still make some headway. What I think is what I think it's almost like a, a diabetic episode, right? You want to get some fast acting sugar in your system relatively quickly. Um, and then obviously you can start to eat significantly more as you start to get through that first phase of getting yeah. out of the bonk. What I, what the classic mistake I've made and I've seen other people make is as soon as that sugar hits, because it hits quick. I mean, when you're bonking and you have some sugar, it's like in a blink of an eye, you're back, yeah. but you're not back. And no, you, you just start riding hard off again. The governor. You've yeah. turned off the governor. The, the brain is, is comfortable now saying, okay, you can go again, but you've not refilled the muscles yet. 
Right. So, and it, yeah. My, my problem is, is as soon as they feel that they hammer again, give yeah. your slow down, give yourself a little bit of time to replenish the glycogen stores. Consider yourself lucky that you're still able to keep going with the group and don't attack, get yourself together, calm down a little bit, take a little bit of time to keep that fuel coming in slowly. So you don't have too, too much at once, like you said, from a digestion perspective. And as you start to feel energy again, you can start opening the throttle slowly. But I think one of the biggest mistakes is that hits that got, that brain thing turns off and they take off again and then they bonk again. For sure. Yeah. And it's, that's just going to put you even deeper in the hole. That's, that's going to put you to a place where you're not going to recover quickly just by getting a little sugar in. You're, you're going to be, you're going to be limping home at that point. So if you've been lucky enough or, or kind of present enough to catch it at a time where you can slow down a bit, get some carbohydrate in, wait for it to kick in and slowly come back, then you can have a great rest of the ride. Yep. If you, if you don't time that correctly and you go too quick after eating, you're probably going to blow the rest of the day. And let's hope like you bonk near the end of your rides. I mean, usually you don't bonk in the first hour like we talked about. It's actually not a bonk. So generally, you don't have but an hour or two. I mean, if you're on an epic and you've bonked, you've totally misjudged everything. And, and, and that's a bigger problem. But generally, Doc, we bonk in those last hour or two. And generally, it's because we rode a little bit harder than we thought we would. So mm-hmm. let's talk about we got a five-hour ride coming up. We bonked three weeks ago. We don't know why we bonked. How do we prevent it from happening again? Like, what are the what are the elements to making sure we're not bonking? We talked a lot about them throughout this podcast, but let's kind of put it all together and give people a really good idea on how to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, the actionable game plan here. Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing to realize is that your plan for that big ride starts two or three days out. It doesn't start the night before. It doesn't start with breakfast. If you're waiting till breakfast, then you're, it's already a lost cause. <laughs> so two or three days out, you want to be decreasing the workload a bit and yeah. increasing the carbohydrate consumption. That doesn't mean massively increase. It just means you know, making sure that every meal has a good source of, of carbohydrate. It can be complex, whatever. But you're, just, you're making sure that your daily draw from that tank is lessened and your daily... Uh, contribution back to that tank is is increased, right? Yep. So it's this steady increase. And then the night before, the dinner before you go do whatever it is you're going to do, the, the long ride, um, that's probably the best time to top things off. I would not do a big, you know, the typical pasta dinner type thing yep. um, because that can be really disturbing to the gut. And a lot of times it's going to decrease how well you sleep overnight. It's just Another meal that is balanced, but probably has a, a more than typical contribution from, from carbohydrates. So, I mean, that could be a sweet potato and some bread. Um, you know, it could be sweet potato, rice, uh, in addition to your protein and other stuff. It's, but it's not like a giant bowl of, of carbohydrate. Yep. So you've done this and then you wake up on the morning of your event and you should have those glycogen stores, those muscular glycogen stores really full at this point. Like I said, overnight you're not digging into those. You're digging into liver storage and that can be replaced really quickly. So just a, whatever breakfast you like, if, if it's oatmeal, if it's toast with peanut butter, um, it doesn't have to be big. It's just kind of getting back a little bit of that glycogen store in the liver and then you're ready to go. So it's not this massive dump again. That's why I say if you've waited till breakfast to have a stack of pancakes and 
oatmeal and you're going to load it all in then, then it's, it's not going to be helpful. You're going to have a rough, rough first 10K, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that gets you to the line full. Yep. And then during the ride, the real key, I mean, if, if, if you've got everything at your disposal, it's having been tested, kind of know your burn rates um, and have a plan to replenish at a certain percentage of that rate. Again, you're going to finish at a decrement from where you started. That's right. fine. You just don't want it to be too low. And so the plan is what gets you there. If you've tested, you can hone that plan. If you've not tested, you still need a plan and you can do it based on averages, um, aiming to put back, you know, maybe 50, 60 grams of carbohydrate an hour um, at, a, at a low end, all the way up to 90 ish grams, depending on what you tolerate, maybe how big you are. Uh, but and it's, just real it's, quick, Doc, I mean, yeah. just, just for our listeners, not, you know, Doc spends a lot of time in Europe. They talk in grams all the time, which is great, but understand that one gram of carbohydrate is four calories. So when he's talking about 50 grams, he's talking about 200 calories of carbohydrate roughly. Um, so basically you gotta, you gotta understand a little bit about, you know, how much calories are in your bottles, how many calories of carbohydrate that is are in your bars and kind of look at that stuff, do a little research beforehand. And like doc said, you want to put back two to 400 calories per hour of carbohydrate, depending on basically how hard you're riding. Yeah. And what you can tolerate because, um, you know, you, you can actually train the gut to some degree to take on more and more. You can't train it indefinitely. Um, but the more you work toward taking in more carbohydrate while exercising, then the, the more you're able to take in. And so it, we've even seen, you know, some of the novel types of carbohydrates, the, the, uh, scratch superfuel, um, Morton, uh, those type products that allow athletes to take on a little more carbohydrate per hour than they would normally with other carbohydrates. So there's, there's different ways to tweak this, but I think before worrying about any of that, it's really having a plan and sticking to it. Right. What I think that does is ensure you've got a, a floor, like you're not going to go too low. Yeah. Um, the other stuff raises your ceiling and improves performance. And that's, that's good to deal with kind of when you're at that point, but make sure you've got a solid floor so that you can, you know, not just totally blow up out there. And if you don't know how many calories you can process or how many calories you're burning, you can look at some charts roughly and just use that 65 to 70% of threshold as, as kind of that 50, 50 number. And then if you don't know how much you can process, just assume 200, 250, even if you can take in 300, just even if you're, you're taking in 300 calories, cause you don't know or 350 calories, you don't know how many you can process if you, if you can't process all those calories you're taking in, it's probably better than bonking. Like even if you get it wrong and you're, and you're not able to process 50 of those calories every hour, it's not the end of the world. That's just something that unfortunately you'll use a little bit of energy and you won't get the fuel from it. But it's a good bet because what you don't want to do is run out of calories. But in your brain, you're only giving yourself credit for 250. So everything else that you're processing is a bonus. And you're only starting with 15 to 1700. So even if you have 1800 or 1900 stored, that's a bonus too. So start at kind of the bottom ends of those thought processes and keep an eye on your power output and look at that average power, look at that normalized power. I think normalized might even be better because when you spike, you really dump the carbohydrate. I think it's probably a better number to look at, Doc, if you're thinking about how much carbohydrate you're burning through. And then ultimately, if you, even if you don't have it exactly right, 
And you just think about those things before you start. You haven't taken a metabolic test like the athletes that I work with and Doc works with when we know exactly how many calories they're burning at every intensity so we can be a little bit more accurate. But even they screw up because they don't have a plan. It's better to have a plan and be a little bit off with your numbers because you haven't done all the tests exactly right. Chances are you're going to make it every time. And if you're not going to make it, you're going to know you're not going to make it. And that's really what, what, what I think our message, Doc, is, is have a plan before you start. And if you're really bad at following a plan, figure out a way, put markers on your stem, have a buddy with you that tells you, hey, man, are you on your plan? Or I think there's even stuff on your watches that'll beep yeah. and stuff and tell you if you need to eat or drink or something like that. Yeah. But on the fueling and the hydration side, I don't care how good of a cyclist you are and how much experience you have. You should always have a plan before you leave every time you have a ride over two and a half, three hours from yeah. a fueling perspective. And I would say, Robbie, even have a plan B, which is, you know, one or two extra gels or something oh. that you put in a seat bag or in a pocket where you're not going to dig into it. Like have, have something there that is your fallback too. Cause you know why doc has extra stuff in his pockets. He's got to give right. it to me. You got to feed Robbie. Exactly. I, I have I have gone and found you cokes before, and who knows yes, you, you. I mean, you got to be a good teammate too, right, Doc? If you're doing a group for ride, sure. you got to bring food for yourself and for, food for the people that don't have a plan. That's because right. If this guy bonks, your ride's going slower. You know, you're, you're, you 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 want to keep everybody kind of going, right? Even it's just like being the guy that has tools in a spare tube. You know, right? Yeah. Exactly. So um, uh, hopefully, you know, just in general terms, I mean, you can get really, really like, you know, anal about this and, and, and do the metabolic test like we do here. You know, we're, we're developing some software that's actually going to even show you how many calories of carbohydrate and fat you're, you're burning at all in a given intensity, um, rough ideas of what that looks like. I mean, nobody knows exactly what's happening in their body because there's a lot of factors that you can't count on. So no one's going to tell you you're burning exactly this many calories of carbohydrate at this intensity because what you did before that, whether it's a hard effort or an easy effort, will change how your body burns fuel in the, in the, in the minutes to follow. But we can at least get general ideas of what that looks like, and you should have an idea in your brain how many calories of fat and carbohydrate. You should know how many calories you're burning because you can see it on your Garmin or your Wahoo or whatever. But what that mix is is kind of DEFCON 2. And you should really start thinking about that as well when you're training. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, Doc, we gave them a great plan of attack in terms of, you know, what things they can be thinking about as they prepare for these longer rides so they don't bonk. But there's some really great new technologies out there. One being that machine that you used at Blackberry Farm, I forget, maybe four or five years ago. And you told me that my muscle glycogen after one of those long, hard rides was low. Tell yeah. me what, how that machine works and what they're looking at. Well, that machine is actually just an ultrasound machine, the same okay. one that you would use uh, to look at. We use to look at muscles and tendons. Some people use to look at babies, you have the heart with an echocardiogram. So there were some guys in Colorado that took that technology and looked at how we could apply it to muscle and detect how much glycogen was in the muscle. So we can pop the probe, the, the ultrasound probe onto your whether it's your thigh or your calf or um, pectoral muscles, whatever we're looking at. And oftentimes we'll look at multiple spots. And with that, we can get um, a, a measurement of how much glycogen is in each muscle. Uh, that's possible because, do you know Inigo San Milan? Have you come across oh, yeah. him? 
He's yeah. Pogachar. He's Pogachar's coach, right? Pogachar. Yeah. yeah, and he's been around training uh, world tour riders for decades. He's brilliant. He's one of the co-founders or co-inventors of this technology. Um, but so in cyclists, we're primarily looking at those leg muscles, and what they've seen is that you can visualize how much glycogen is in there on the screen. And then the computer basically takes it, reads it because it's a grayscale image, but it gives you a readout of how much glycogen is there. So you can do that before and after an exercise and kind of get an idea of how depleting it was, how effective fueling was, um, all those things. It's a, it's a really fascinating technology. And like you said, we got to do it with you and a few other folks at BlackBerry a couple of years ago. And my takeaway doc was, you know, even though I ate, I felt I ate pretty good afterwards. You're like, Robbie, you know, you're pretty darn depleted. Are you, are you, you know, I, I was almost more depleted than I was fatigued. And that was just one more confirmation that I really need a lot of carbohydrates when I ride more than, than I think most people do. Um, I burned through it like, like nobody else. So that was a yeah. really interesting thing. Now that's pretty difficult to do on a regular basis. Obviously there's elements sure. to that, that we can't do like, you know, other people can't, but there is some technologies that are coming out, these wearable devices that are allowing us to figure out what our blood glucose is. Talk about the evolution of that and how that could really help us in this bonking thing. Yeah. So there's a few companies that have made wearable, uh, 24 seven glucose monitors for diabetics for years now. Um, and it's something I've used with my patients and tried to adapt a bit uh, to athletes in terms of how we interpret the data. Uh, but there's a company that's come out very recently and taken one of those sensors, actually a new version of one of those sensors, um, and really targeted toward athletes, not just with the sensor, but with the, the app interface. So like most things nowadays, it, it connects by Bluetooth to your phone and then all the, all the analytics and everything happen on your phone. Um, so this company is called Super Sapiens, and it basically gives you a minute by minute blood sugar analysis. And what we're looking at is how high is the glucose level in your, in your bloodstream, or in this case, in the interstitium, the area around the cells. And where that's interesting, of course, for a diabetic is, you know, making sure they don't go too high, planning their insulin doses and all that. But we see a lot of variability in athletes. And so what we do is then take that into the setting of like a long bike ride. And we can see that at the outset, presumably, you know, you're well-fueled and your glucose level is going to be maybe 80, 90, 100, somewhere in there as you take off for the day. Once you start riding uh, with exercise and then with increasing intensity, that glucose level goes up. Now, your body releases that fuel to be used or releases that glycogen to be used as fuel by the muscles and, and, and the brain and everything else as needed. If you don't replenish, eventually that glucose level starts to come down the same way the glycogen is depleted. So it kind of parallels that. It lags a little bit um, in the measuring, but for all intents and purposes, you're getting to view uh, like a, a fuel gauge on your body. Um, and you can see whether you're going appropriately high for the harder efforts and then whether you're starting to, to drift off at the end. So it's a good way to get some, some idea into whether your fueling is effective in the moment, um, which currently requires you to have your phone visible, uh, but the technology, because it's Bluetooth, will allow it to go eventually to a watch or a bike head unit or whatever, uh, to where it can be just another metric that you see along with your your power and heart rate and everything else. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I had some I've had some um, ex experience with it, and I just it, it was interesting how 
just like that central governor, as you start to get more fatigue, your body just doesn't allow, doesn't release, doesn't give you that high um, muscle glycogen number that allows you to perform at your best every time. It slowly but surely starts to pull some some of that off the table and you can feel it, you know, when you don't have that, that not super high, obviously for me, I think it was about 130 to 140 that I really kind of had good intervals at. Um, and I think as you start to see that number decay down, it's probably a good indicator that you're not bonking yet, but that potentially could be an indicator of a bonk eventually as you start to wear those devices. And I know I was looking at my phone uh, quite a bit during my longer, harder rides, and it was really a telling a telling thing. So thank you for introducing me to that. I would love to have that information on our velocity app as well. So we can actually look at their, how much fat and carbohydrate you're burning, but also look at how much the body is saying is kind of available at any given time. So I think the combination of those things is really going to help people understand fueling, what they're burning, how much more they have left, etc. So yeah, super sapiens is really cool. I'm super excited to get more involved and, and use that thing more often. Cool. Yeah. And, and I think what uh, the, the other way that it comes into use for training sessions is the, the 20 hours around the training session. Right. Yep. So you can see what's happening while you're on the bike, but you can also see overnight. Did you refuel well enough? Um, you know, is your glucose fairly stable through the day or are you getting these massive spikes and you know, peaks and valleys? Um, and somewhere in between is really what we're looking for. We're not looking to make it just a straight line. Um, but it gives you an idea of whether you're fueling appropriately in the time around your ride so that your ride is is really set up to be optimal. So, Doc, let's talk about um, this theory that bonking can potentially help us, right? So whenever we have a stress like a bonk or like a hard two-minute effort or like a hard 30-minute steady-state effort, our body responds to that stress with an accommodation of some sort. and And there's a lot of thought out there that, you know, if you bonk, your body starts to make some changes um, physiologically that allow it to not bonk at that same effort next time. Um, and some of those changes can be potentially beneficial. But before we talk, we're not going to use the word bonk anymore. Let's just go to kind of glycogen restricted or carbohydrate restricted training and what that actually means. And then what are the potential benefits? Yeah, so this is really kind of a, a percentage of bonking. You're not going all the way, but you're kind of pushing up against that limit and and trying to encourage some physiologic changes that will be beneficial down the road. They, they won't be beneficial in the moment. Um, it's really it's it's like that effort, that two minute effort for training. Right. It, it stinks at the moment, but it's going to benefit you down the road. And so there's a couple things we look at here. One is if if you train your body to perform in a state where there's limited glycogen resources, then we talked about there's two fuels the body can use. Um, in theory, it will switch your metabolism to maybe draw on more fat for fuel at higher intensities. Um, the research behind this shows that this, uh, it is possible to do. It does work. Um, it's not the type of thing where, I mean, it's a balance. So, you know, you, you can't just overdo it because then you start to lose your ability to burn glycogen actually. And somebody may go from being a, a very good sprinter to, to kind of taking the edge off their sprint. Yep. So it's not like it's good or bad. It's kind of pulling these, these different uh, levers to be able to put yourself in the place you want to be. Um, so one of the things 
then is improving how efficient you are at burning fat in, in these efforts that are harder and harder. The other thing potentially that's beneficial is an ability to store glycogen. So if you're constantly emptying the tank, your body will start to increase the size of the tank. Um, and this is not, uh, it's not a massive change, but you know, if you can go from holding, say, like we talked about 1500 calories to 2000 calories in glycogen stores, that's massive. Oh, yeah. And that's a 33% increase. Um, it may only be enough calories to support a little bit more activity, but that may be just enough to get you through a bad place on a group ride or perform in a, in a situation where you wouldn't have otherwise. So it, it, that's kind of the two ends of the spectrum that, that this type of training can really benefit. And if you're doing Ironman triathlon or you're doing long um, gravel events, you know, the ability to oxidize fat more effectively is, is a huge benefit. Um, yeah. You can, you know, the rate limiting factor to these longer events is glycogen combustion or carbohydrate combustion. I mean, if, if you, if I can burn less carbohydrate than you, um, I'm basically going to be able to go a little bit harder and a little bit longer than you are. And, and I'm going to have a better result ultimately. So training your body to to burn fat at a higher intensity, to burn fat more efficiently, and to have a larger glycogen storage tank, those are huge advantages for endurance athletes. Now, there is a potential tremendous cost to training that though. Um, and I think that most people get too extreme in general when they train, but from, from the science and the stuff that's out there, we're not even sure everybody responds to that type of training. And let's just talk about what that means. There is, there's the, there is going into rides, slightly depleted and then riding at a lower intensity and not replacing much, if not any glycogen for a given period of time. So at the point where you're not bonking, right, you haven't hit those switches, your brain hasn't turned on, but that stress, right. Will help you help your body make decisions to burn more fat effectively, right. To oxidize fat better, to change its lipids and do different things like this. You can talk a little bit more about the exact science that's happening. But the other one is, to, to go into the ride um, slightly depleted, but to give yourself a little bit of carbohydrate, but just less than you normally would. And then there's the thought of after the ride, not replenishing carbohydrate. Talk about why one of those or all of those may be effective and, and ultimately what you have seen on the pro tour work for most of the guys. Cause obviously you have to experiment with these things. You want to be careful when you experiment with them. You almost want to do this with a coach or with a doctor or with yeah. somebody to kind of really pay attention to it. But what have you seen good and bad from these types of experiments? Well, um, so the first scenario you lay out where you come in depleted and you do a, a ride without really replenishing during the ride, what, what that usually looks like in a traditional setting is the day before the afternoon before you may do like a very intense effort. You'll do a lot of intervals, really empty the tank. Then you have a dinner that is, you know, zero or very yeah. low carbohydrate. You sleep overnight, wake up, have nothing to eat and go do your ride. Um, and that is the type of ride where you keep the effort fairly low. The whole idea is to just encourage that process of burning fat um, and improve that, uh, what we call aerobic metabolism. And that can be pretty beneficial. It's usually something that we on the pro level will save for the off season. You know, it's not something that gets done much during the season. Occasionally, depending on the schedule, there may be a day or two to do it, but typically it's going to be something that's looked at in the off season, if at all. 
I have seen it nearly sink the career of two guys in particular that I, I can think of. Yeah. Um, because it was just, they, it, it was approached with an idea that if a little of this is good, a lot must be better. Um, and that was by nobody's fault. I think it was just kind of a, a falling apart of communication and, and a very typical response of athletes. Let's talk about those issues that this athlete had. Most likely he was training at too high of an intensity and for too long of a duration depleted. And at altitude. Oh, which, well, throw which, a third one in there, doc. Nice. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's just constant depletion to the point that even when, when we look at blood work, we see uh, variations in hormones like thyroid hormone, testosterone hormone. They basically just push themselves into an overtraining state, even though training is pretty low. I mean, it, it, from an intensity standpoint, you look at it and you're like, well, I did, I was on the bike a bunch, but I never really did more than about 220 Watts. And for a pro rider, I mean, that's just cruising. Um, but half and half, and we talked about that. He's exactly. still burning 450 calories of carbon hour. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just a mismatch of, is a chronic mismatch of intake versus, uh, versus output. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't want to paint it in too bad a light because the, the point is you can overdo anything yep. and it's, it's a beneficial stimulus when done correctly. And again, it goes back to the idea of having a plan and sticking to the plan. And, and I think, Doc, you know, one of my one of my whole things is I, I went through a phase where I had athletes doing more of that. I still have athletes doing it um, and experimenting with it and trying it, but it's at such a, a, a more tolerable amount. Like I just I I, I do pull back on glycogen certain times um, when they're when they're not training high intensity, but it's more of a timing of when they eat more or less carbohydrate and trying to just slowly but surely pull back on the carbohydrate when they're riding easy and they don't need it as much and giving more of it when they need more of it. So it's, it's almost like morphing into like carbohydrate timing more so than these glycogen depletion rides. Although I do sometimes want to stress that that is good training if your athlete responds well to it, but you just got to keep a really good idea on how they're coming off of it, using the aura ring and using those recovery metrics and making sure that it's not having too detrimental of an effect on their ability to train hard, you know, the next day or their ability to recover at night. For sure. And, and then you talked about kind of the middle ground where you go out and you're kind of a little bit depleted and you kind of restrict carbohydrates, but it's not extreme. And with that, you can, you can get some of the same benefits, not to the same degree, but you also don't have the same risks and you can, you can train at a higher level. So, you know, I think we're pretty familiar with this concept when we look at altitude and we talk about, uh, you know, people have probably heard about the, the, you know, live high, train low versus live low, train high and all the ways they looked at it. Yep. And basically uh, w the problem with training all the time at altitude is that you can't train very hard. Right. And then you kind of lose fitness because of it. You may become physiologically adapted in a, in a positive manner, but you got high end. Yeah. You, you lose the fitness. And so it's the same thing with, with glycogen in this regard, that if you're always doing that, you may become a better fat burner, um, but you really don't have efficient training. And so being able to kind of, you know, balance that in a way that you go out, maybe the first part of your ride's a little depleted, you start to refuel and then you do you know, appropriately fuel for some efforts at the end and you kind of pick both boxes. Um, that can be a, a really useful way, I think, to do it. The other thing is if you just do an overnight fast, 
kind of irrespective of what you ate at night and what you did the day before and just deplete the, the liver glycogen stores, the muscles are full, but the liver glycogen is what feeds the brain. And so if you go out and do a fasted ride for an hour, hour and a half uh, with kind of empty liver glycogen stores, you can do the ride, but you're training your brain that you can do the ride when it thinks there's not that much glycogen around. And so there's, there's different ways that you approach it and different, um, different stimuli, I guess, to, to get to the different uh, uh, benefits from it. We did that all of last year during, during COVID. We had a Wednesday glycogen-depleted ride where we, you were on one of our podcasts. We had a 90-minute ride. We had everybody um, not have breakfast, stop eating at 7 o'clock, and then do the ride the next day. And it was amazing. You know, we, we were asking the athletes. We did this, I think, for about four or five months. And we were asking the athletes how they were responding and how they were feeling on Thursday. And some of the athletes were fine, I think, um, and, and actually felt fine on Thursday. Some of them it didn't work so well for. So mm-hmm. and that might have been how hard they were riding on that Wednesday podcast ride. But it's amazing. I think trial and error and experimenting with this stuff is ultimately the best way to do it and to see how your body responds and, and how aggressive you can be without having a, a decrease in performance. But I think at the end of the day, we all don't kind of respond the same way. I think that's an important note here. Yeah. And some people really, really uh, stoke up their fat burning metabolism when that happens. And some people just feel crappy. So I think you have to experiment a little bit and, and, and really do it for enough time with enough of the variables being the same to understand how you respond. Yeah. Yeah. And just because your riding buddy who's getting faster says, hey, this is what I'm doing, doesn't yeah. mean it's the right thing for you to do. I mean, honestly, oftentimes it's not. Um, there, there's probably a good takeaway in there, but uh, you got to find what works for you. So uh, we're just going to kind of leave it there, Doc. I, I just want to say thank you for your time today. This was awesome. Um, I, I, I think at the end of the day, to kind of summarize this, bonking is bad. And, and you never want to put yourself in a state where you're bonking. But understand, even though it's bad, it's your brain that's really forcing you to kind of slow down, you probably have enough carbohydrate to get to that next feed zone or get to that finish line if you really had to. And the more times you put yourself there, the more you can kind of control that, 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 that brain response to slow things down. Number two, there's ways to get better. There's ways not to bonk, and that is to have a great plan. And if you do bonk in a ride, you know you have to eat some carbohydrate pretty quickly to get through it. But ultimately, you want to have a plan that doesn't lead you there. But oftentimes, sometimes it's out of your control and the pace is a little hotter than you thought to stay with the Peloton. And boom, you're in a situation where you have to really make some decisions. Um, There is some benefit. Obviously, the glycogen depletion work. Um, Everybody responds a little bit differently. But start off being very conservative with your experiments and just depleting a little bit and then going out for maybe a 90 or two-hour ride and seeing how your body responds. But ultimately, if you would save that for the experimental time. Like it's either in the winter or the springtime. You might not want to start experimenting with glycogen depletion in the middle of your season or as you're you're building up towards a big event. Um, And ultimately, these are much better um, changes in your body if you're doing endurance events, not necessarily explosive or short high-intensity events because we want to maintain that fast-switch muscle fiber and that glycolytic motor. So in sum, did I hit most of it, Doc? Did I miss anything? I think you nailed it. That was perfect. Okay. Thank you again for coming. Love having you on the Velocity Podcast. Cannot wait you, for Robbie. the next time we have you. And um, enjoy Europe this year. Hopefully you'll get over there and, and enjoy some bicycle racing and, and really help out the EF team. You do such a great job over there. and Just, just, just love the fact that you can contribute um, 
to not only EF education, but also uh, velocity and, and so many other people. I know you work with a lot of other professional athletes that, that really appreciate uh, your support. Well, thanks, Robbie. I really appreciate it. And this was fun. It's a good, good conversation. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you letting me join you. Hopefully they learned something, right? I mean, I'm sure a lot of people that follow this podcast probably know 80% of it, but if you pick up just a couple of nuggets, I think that's really what you're looking to do. And hopefully at the Velocity Podcast, we kind of give you those nuggets. And if you have any questions, you have any thoughts, please just email me, Robbie, rventura at vqvelocity.com. Ciao. See ya.